Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I'm the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, we have a guest host. It's Sarah Rausch, author of XO from us at Autofocus Books. And she's in conversation with Catherine Indermauer. Catherine Indermauer's first full-length book, I, I, was selected as the winner of the 2022 Deborah Tall Lyric Essay Book Prize, and just recently as the winner of the 2023 Colorado Book Award. All right, let's get to it. This is Sarah Rausch's conversation with Catherine Indermauer. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of change happening right now. I have a 10-month-old baby. Um, and yeah, and she's our first and, um, I, I work full time currently for the, actually for Colorado State University, which is where I got my MFA in creative writing. Um, but I work as a communicator. Um, so it's not related to my degree in that way. Um, but I do a lot of writing. It's just, uh, you know, like student recruitment and retention kind of writing. Um, and yeah, but I'm actually quitting that um, at the end of May to be um, a full-time stay-at-home parent. Ooh. And yeah, and that's going to be a big shift, but it's just daycare is insanely expensive and hard to come by here. And we were waitlisted for many, many months and um, things have just gotten really hard post, like, I, I hate saying post-pandemic because I, I feel like that's a lie a little bit but um through the pandemic things have gotten much harder childcare wise so um yeah but she's a lot of fun right now and so i'm i'm looking forward to spending more time with her and playing with her for sure nice yeah yeah it's i you're in colorado right am i that's right yeah i'm in fort collins which is like northern it's like an hour north of denver okay cool Mm-hmm. Um, I know I'm out in Massachusetts and I know during the pandemic, a lot of childcare places closed and then just never reopened. Right. They didn't have the funding. Right. They don't have the staff. So yeah. I can definitely see that that would be a lot to juggle. Um, and I bet you'll have fun. I stayed home with both of my kids for my oldest. I stayed home with until he was almost three and then he went to school part time. Uh-huh. And then my youngest went into school full time. I've switched them both to full time when he was about two. So like overall, it was like four, four or five years where I was always home with a kid. And, you yeah. know, it has its moment. <laughs> it has its moment. Yeah, right. It's a lot of fun. It's it's fun to just like be with them and see them kind of becoming. Yes. Uh, becoming, a, becoming the people that they are, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but it's going to be. I'm also trying hard to like build scaffolding for myself to support like my adult identities. Yes. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great if you have like a family member or even can hire a babysitter one day a week to come yes. and just like give yourself a break and go do something right. that's like good for you, makes you feel human because that that definitely helps a ton. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Um Okay, so cool. You so you have an MFA from CSU, yep. and how long ago did you get your MFA? I finished in twenty nineteen. So okay. a few years ago now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seems like forever ago, but <laughs> I know. Yeah, pandemic time is weird. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I know that part of II was published previously as a chat book called "Facing the Mirror." 
Um, and that mm -hmm. would have been, it was around, okay, so that was 2021. Did any of this get written when you were in your MFA program or did it come kind of yes. after? Yes. No, um, this, what eventually became II was about a third of my uh, MFA thesis. Okay. Um, so I had written, I'd gotten started on it and then basically my, um, my advisor was like, you know, if you could turn this chunk into a book length, something that could be exciting. So, um, that was, I was looking toward that when I graduated. Nice. Nice. So that's great. So you had mm -hmm. kind of a foothold in, in it during the MFA, which is always really great. Right. Cool. We'll, we'll come back to the, the book and your other books in a little bit, but I was curious about mm -hmm. that you know, what you're preoccupied with as an MFA person and then what right. actually becomes your published work later on. Like, are they the same? Do they change drastically? And every writer has kind right. of a different. Well, yeah, because I've heard so many people say, and so many like poets who I really admire and whose work I admire say things like, I'm so glad my MFA thesis wasn't my first book. It would have been horrendous or something, you know? <laughs> and then I, but I also know people whose beautiful first book was their MFA thesis. So I think, yeah, there are all sorts of di differing, um, opinions on that, but I, and experiences, but I think a lot of that also has to do with how old you are. I mean, I yes. I started grad school when I was 26, so I feel like I had, and I had graduated from undergrad at 21, so I'd been working and had moved from North Carolina to Wyoming and lived in Wyoming for several years, and I felt like I had, um, you know, this more kind of grown-up desire to pursue writing and as not just another scholastic endeavor or something it was actually you know um, a little bit more uh, mature at that point um, but I don't know it, it is funny um, how different people's like work in that MFA program either like it becomes their first novel or it just informs kind of how they write as as a professional later yeah yeah and uh, you might be right too about that kind of having some some space between undergrad and grad school and like what kind of happens in there and that lived experience and just like being out in the world and like you maybe have rather than going straight from undergrad into grad school especially as a writer like yep. you know that that um having that lived experience however long it is can be really informative you, you kind of maybe know yourself a little bit better or at least you know yourself yeah. not as a student a little bit better yes absolutely yeah and uh, you know yourself outside of like a classroom dynamic um yeah and also as a person who's not surrounded by people their own age all the time you know like yeah. somebody who's working with people who are your parents age and like what that relationship is like but yeah i i think people i got a lot of advice from my undergraduate professors who said, if you want to get an MFA, don't go immediately, wait. Mm -hmm. And I was so annoyed by that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now that you've like been through it, you yeah. understand where that advice comes from, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit about young Catherine. What were you like? Were you a writer and a reader from a young age? Were you a reader first and then a writer? What was, what was your childhood experience like in, in this world? Absolutely, I was both. I always really liked reading. My mom likes to tell a story about how I showed up to kindergarten and read a book out loud to the class the first day of class. <laughs> <laughs> And a Dr. Seuss book, of course. Um, and I, my dad worked for IBM um, 
for a long time when I was a kid and I got an old ThinkPad of his. Um, and this was like very early internet days. So it wasn't connected to the internet at all. But I, I remember it had Solitaire, mm. um, Minesweeper, mm-hmm. and Microsoft Word. Mm. <laughs> it was Windows 95. Perfect. And I would start stories on there. I remember typing, and I was probably like eight years old or something, and I would write stories. But I don't think I finished any of them. I think it was just constantly like um, beginning and beginning. Um, and it was all stories. Um, I remember writing like handwriting some stories also and bringing them to school. Um, but I, I didn't really think about poetry much um, until I went to a high school um, that was a magnet high school and had a lot of opportunities for the arts. Um, and I was really lucky enough to take a creative writing class in high school um, where we actually were reading a lot more contemporary writing and not just, you know, like not just the classics. Yeah, not like Robert Frost and Sylvia Plath. And, you know, as much as I love those writers, um, it I was like, oh, th- these are like alive people thinking about today things. Um, and then we were encouraged to, you know, we actually had class time to write creatively um, and to workshop a little bit. Um, so I ended up taking that class twice, even though my counselor was like, you know, if you take this class again, you won't get credit. And I was like, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> I will graduate um but I yeah so I was uh really lucky to get that opportunity and so basically when I started um undergrad at the University of North Carolina I was like I definitely want to be taking poetry workshop and taking English classes and literature classes and um and that's where I landed very nice all right, so yeah. it's definitely been a, a, a lifelong, lifelong thing. Yeah, obsession. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, as it is for so many writers, right, that like you kind of have to be, I remember in a poetry workshop, one of my professors being like, you kind of have to be obsessive about language or just like the idea of doing it, like that that has to mm-hmm. be somewhere. There has to be something that's going to keep like continually drawing you back to it. Definitely. Yeah, and I also had... I guess some a couple of other threads of young Catherine were um, I was also really into music for a long time. I, I took piano lessons most of my childhood and and I mean in high school in particular, I was spending like an hour a day or more on like at the piano. Um, also played violin and and dabbled in a couple other instruments. but um, th- so I was thinking about music a lot and I think that also informs I mean I, I remember, really in undergrad really wanting to understand like why certain poetry sounded so good like I was just Mm. like there's I I discovered I could get to a certain kind of tone that was really um, elegant through a lot of revision Um, but I was like what like it it felt like a code I wanted to break um, in language and um, and so I, I spent a lot of time with, you know, listening to and thinking about classical music in particular. And I think that also really informs, um, I think a lot of poets are also just like musical people. Um, mm. yeah. yeah, there is something about poetry where you're, you're kind of like going so much by the ear. Yeah. There, other stuff matters too, but the ear is so important and like what you hear. Um, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. That makes sense actually that 
you were into classical music yeah. and played the piano. I can totally see that having, <laughs> having read your work now. Yeah. Um, are you still doing the editing work for Sugar House Review? I am. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I, I had to step back like a little bit when I, like in the throes of early motherhood. But uh, yeah, I still read the cue. Um, I love proofreading. <laughs> um, yeah, I help curate some of the online content. Um, yeah, but those uh, those folks are great. I love working with them, and I um, yeah, currently helping read the cue basically. And how long have you been doing that for? Since I graduated from uh, from grad school, basically. I mean, I, I finished at Colorado State in 2019 as the managing editor of Colorado Review and really enjoyed that and, and wanted to keep up with that um, kind of work. And I moved to Salt Lake City. Now I'm back in Colorado, but um, I moved out there initially in Sugar House Reviews based in Utah. So um, I got in touch with some of those folks and basically just said, can I help? <laughs> I, here's my nice. like experience. And um, so I think it was like late 2019 because I remember it was before COVID lockdown started. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you've been doing that for about three, a little over three yep. years. Mm -hmm. um, and are there poetry only? That's right. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I, I did a little bit of research and I was like, oh, I, I feel like I, I don't know that many journals that are poetry only yeah. and I, I hadn't I hadn't heard of them until I was researching you and I got kind of fascinated. There's something about keeping poetry with other poetry that like really allows it to kind of speak in a certain way versus yeah. I mean I love the kind of traditional literary journals sure. too where there's fiction and nonfiction and poetry is kind of all woven mm -hmm. in, but when you have just poetry gathered together, it kind of speaks in a different a different way. So Definitely. And it's I really enjoy, I mean, it almost, they feel like little anthologies, um, each issue in a way. And we've also been working on expanding our um, visual poetry, video poetry, just like intermedia. Um, I'm probably not saying that right. You know, other than just like text on a page, um, the stuff that we can do on our website. Um, and that's also really exciting. We've published some like embroidery um, some really cool like erasures that involve textiles and collage, um, some video poetry that's exciting. And, and I also find that to be really fun as a, like a, I'm putting reading in air quotes here, but like a reading <laughs> experience um, to go on the website and, and see each of those issues is also um, interesting to have those kind of line up one after the other um, in a way that, yeah, I do. It's funny, I now that I've been working for them for a while, I sort of forgot about, yeah, oh, it's uh, just poetry and how that's kind of unique. Um, but I do, the first thing I thought of when you said that is that as somebody who submits work to magazines and uh, literary journals that I'm, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm submitting to like traditional print journal at university where like they publish, you know, three stories, three essays and like 20 pages of poetry. And, and it's like, oh, it's so hard to get into that like 20 page <laughs> <laughs> slot. <Yeah>. Totally. <laughs> so submit to Sugar because it's every issue. <laughs> <It's a whole laughs> issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about like, the I mean, the internet has been great, terrible for some things, but great for a lot of other things in that 
you know, when you're publishing poetry online, it does allow you to be a little bit more um, hybrid or kind of playful with how the work is presented. Whereas yes. if you were printing something like this, you, you might not be able to just because of the visual aspect. And so the internet allows this kind of visual visuality <laughs> to kind yeah. of come through in poetry and, and to just allow authors to be more playful with what they're, with how they're communicating their poems. Definitely. Yeah. And sugar is primarily print, but you know, we, we do some stuff online also. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there are real constraints for print, especially right now. I mean, trim size obviously is something that poets have been pushing up against since Walt Whitman. But I think um, <laughs> there's also right now, I mean, ink is really expensive. Paper is really expensive. Like supply chains got um, all messed up during the, the height of the pandemic and, and uh, people are still recovering. I mean, I know a lot of journals have gone fully online just so that they could, you know, not go into debt basically. Um, but uh you know, I value both. I think it's really, it's exciting. And, and a lot of the stuff from II was originally published online um, because it's just easier, um, you know, but I, I think I, as a poet, I also think a lot about trim size when I'm writing. I think a lot about like the page itself and like um, if from very early on when I was drafting, I wanted a lot of the um, text to appear more towards the middle of the page rather than at the top. So it's like I, mm, that visual yeah. aspect, um, I, I think happens for me at least very early on in the drafting process too. Yeah, I can see that now that I'm flipping through my copy now mm -hmm. that you mentioned that. And I'm like, I can totally see that you were keeping that in mind and just the way that each page is kind of set and Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So you had that, you actually had that idea of like what the page was going to look like as you were writing the 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 whole book. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping, there are definitely certain sections where it spills onto the next page or something like that, but I really was thinking a lot about wanting it to be framed or like contained or um, a little more square um than your typical prose um and i mean of course the page already does that a little bit but even more so yeah um yeah well and that makes sense given the the, the kind of central preoccupation of the book right where you, you the the narrator is looking in the mirror um mm -hmm. that the the page becomes its own kind of mirror oh this is so great this is actually this is perfect um because one of the things i really loved about the book is that it is interrogating the narrator's face and words mm -hmm. in kind of the same way. And so now like you're giving me, you're blowing my mind. I have a whole nother dimension <laughs> for like, it's also like considering the page and how the words appear on the page, you know, yeah. from, from that perspective and in the same way. And that like the mirror kind of uh, is a thing that kind of, you know, holds holds an image together, right? But yes. the mirror in over the course of I, I becomes this place where things are being dismantled or things are being sought. The narrator is, 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 you know, kind of a feeling this kind of split into two. Is it a false split? Is it not, <laughs> you know, like, wow. Okay. Let's, <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's dive in and, and talk about the book. I'm going to give a little summary of it that I wrote up and you can feel free to add anything that I kind of miss, but this is just something short. Okay. Um, so I, I is a serial lyric essay that examines the relationship between the seeing and the scene, 
this in-between place with the mirror and other reflective surfaces as the intermediary. The vertical slash or Sheffer's stroke act as a, acts as a stand-in for the mirror on the page so that the eye, eye of the narrator is split into subject and object. And you do also do this really interesting thing as you go where me, me is has the Sheffer stroke between it mm -hmm. and then subject and object has the Sheffer stroke between it sometimes. Um, so I guess maybe to, to kick off, my, my kicking off question is kind of about your choice of using that Sheffer stroke or vertical slash. Like there's a little bit of an explanation in the back of the book about what, mm -hmm. the, what that punctuation means, which maybe will be helpful for you to kind of explain a little bit. And then sure. I'm curious about like how you decided to use that punctuation and then what it was like to kind of use it throughout the course of the book. Yeah, I love this question. I love... Um punctuation. <laughs> um, and I think that I started using it, like a lot of what happens in the book actually starts at the Shepherd stroke um, in terms of how I wrote the book. So I started using it just like, oh, it's on the keyboard. And it <laughs> it's a very clear vertical line across which something can be reflected. Um, and so for me, I started using it just as kind of a stand-in of the mirror surface, knowing that it would get more complicated the more I used it um, and where I used it. But uh, I, that's how it started. And then as I continued to work on the text, I was like, you know, I should probably look into this punctuation mark. Like I, you know, I, I'm familiar with other punctuation, but I don't know like how this is used and what the history of it is. So I started to look into that. And that's when I discovered the Sheffer stroke usage that you referred to, which um, it comes from logic. And I, and I um, usually when I'm reading from the book too, I give this spiel to the audience because it's in the title. And if you're just listening to it, it's also, um, I think it's important to to visualize the line between the eye and the eye and the title um, and throughout the text. So the Sheffer stroke in logic means nand or not and. Uh, so basically you have one thing on one side, one thing on the other. With the Sheffer stroke between, um, one of those things can be true or they can both be false, but they can both not be true at the same time. Um, and I was like, oh, I love this. <laughs> this is so interesting. Um, and that felt also really true to um, a lot of the concerns that you were speaking to earlier about um, what the mirror does to vision and also to perception, which I think are, are different things. Um, so yeah, I started using it and there, like you said, there's a note at the end of the book that also speaks to um, some other ways to read um, the vertical slash. But um, I think that's a good place to to start thinking about it. Um, but yeah, for me, as somebody who comes from poetry, the sort of plot of the book uh, really, or, or the like the drama of the book starts in the punctuation um, and moves out from there. Yeah, for sure. Because I think I had kind of an, uh, 
instinctual idea of what you were doing as I was reading. And then when I got to the end and saw that note on punctuation, I was like, oh, wow. Because, <laughs> you know, if if one one thing can be true or they both can be false, but no, they both can't yeah. be true at the same time, it, the whole course of the book where we have a, a narrator looking in, a, in the mirror or just like any of mm-hmm. us looking in a mirror, it's like one of those can be true or they but they can't right. both be true. And like, what does, what does that do to how we perceive ourselves? And I think it's interesting that you said when you were um, explaining that, um, that vision and perception are two separate are two yeah. different things. And I think that that's, that's kind of woven into the book also that like what you see and what you perceive are so can be yeah. so different. Yeah. And I thought it was also really important to, for me in writing the book to, recognize that there because I think it's a very easy thing to say and I think a lot of thinkers and uh, have said this over time that oh the mirror is false it's illusion it's a hundred percent illusion mm-hmm. you know everything that happens in there well it's it's like converting the real world to, to two dimensions like that that's totally false and I and I really wanted to wrestle with that and push back against that and say no there is something true about the mirror otherwise we wouldn't have all these stories about um you know mirror mirror on the wall like (laughs) who's the fairest of them all like why would the mirror have access to that information why in this text from the 13th century is god looking in a mirror to see what's really going on in in the world like like there's something um that's maybe perhaps even truer um happening in the mirror it's not you know it's uh despite it being a flattened um way and any also a flipped um way of seeing uh that um there is something honest um, about it although not Hmm. not a (laughs) hundred percent yeah yeah yeah, it's it's really fascinating, and I I think that you know towards the end of the book you you mentioned um, that the mirror is a central object in a Shinto shrine, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And then like a page or two later, you talk about um, I think it's maybe Catholic or some kind of Christian tradition where it's like the mirror has to be like either covered or like you know it can't be anywhere near oh that's you know, it's, um it's cons- jewish uh morning tradition i think yeah, oh yeah. yes uh-huh. yeah yeah that's right so it's like you actually you know you need it to be kind of closed off and i thought like the there's there are two such different responses to the same object right. but they both speak to its power right right yeah and um also the the church the christian church i guess mainly the catholic church has had uh, a lot of different responses I think you know one of them is that I, for a while the mirror was actually banned um, because it was thought of as being this gateway to um, trance states and sinful behavior and I don't know maybe like the way demons enter the world or something but um, but at the same time that that was happening pilgrims catholic pilgrims who were visiting these uh holy sites were taking little hand mirrors with them because you know this is obviously way before cameras but it was sort of thought that everything you showed the mirror to was like kept there Mm. so they would take these little you know like proto smartphones with them (laughs) 
to <laughs> to sites and like show it, show the mirror to it. And then they'd take it home with them and they'd have this little piece mm. or so they thought of this holy site or however many holy sites they visited with them in this mirror. So yeah, you're totally right. There's something, many different human traditions across the world and across centuries recognize the power of this object, um, whether that's by being afraid of it or by trying to wield it in some way. Worshiping it, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, the Catholic thing with the trance state. And I wonder, like, because Catholic tradition is that, like, you speak to God through an intermediary, right? Like, through the mm -hmm. priests, through the, the church uh, clergy and all that. So if, you know, you have this mirror, there's potential there for, like, these intermediaries to not really be necessary. Like, oh, I can just find God here, right? Right, <laughs> I right. I wonder if that was part of it. Like, See my future or, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, access something. And I also, I love the, the anecdote about the Christian pilgrims in the mirror because it says something, too, about, like, memory and how memory is a little bit yeah. of a mirror right in like how mm -hmm. we see things and and perceive things too because there's that there's that divide in memory also like we don't remember what yes. actually happened we remember our perception of things and then we kind of rewrite it as we remember it so i'm this is actually maybe a good lead into one of my next questions which is how much research did you do for this book because there's so much of this kind of amazing interesting information kind of worked into the narrative of the book that I'm like I, did you do a, a lot of reading for it did you just know a yes. lot of this stuff I did not I knew some things um but I like I knew a little bit about how mirrors were like I knew about the mirror makers on Venice and how the mercury they worked with to make mirrors uh really got them sick um mm. and I knew a little bit of um just where mirrors appeared in sort of like key cultural texts um, and wanted to work some of those, in, you know, some fairy tales and things like that. Um, but like the anecdote about Christian pilgrims carrying them, the uh, anecdote about, um, or not anecdote, but the information about uh, the Shinto shrine um, usage of mirrors, like stuff like that I did not know. Um, and I was lucky to find like one of the things i started doing after grad school was um reading just very like dry <laughs> uh non-fiction like research texts that were like here is a history of the mirror um i watched some videos um i think they were primarily like pbs videos about how mirrors are made and also about um the mirrors that are used in telescopes um, and how those are made. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a lot of that and I think it was it was huge for me because I you know the endeavor of this book was never to be a complete history um, or to you know tell you all the important places where mirrors come up in the world or something like that. Um, it was definitely much more personal, uh, but I also had this drive to, like I wanted to be able to resonate with a lot of those texts, um, a lot of the facts and the history of the mirror. And basically where, where a, a lot of 
places in which the mirror became personal for other people throughout history and how. Mm. Um, and it, you were one of the main things I think about with your question too is that it really took me going to graduate school and hopefully this isn't the case for other people, but for me, I, I was in grad school and, and realized I could write creatively from texts that were not creative. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, I can like do research for poetry and not just as a docu-poetics, um, although that uh, genre of poetry is hugely important and, and magnificent. But I, uh, I'm the kind of person who writes best when I'm spending time with other texts um, or other types of media and having my mind work through that text um, is where I generate a lot of new ideas um, and new things I want to say. So yeah, I did a lot of that of just, you know, every morning before work I would read for an hour and take notes and then I would take notes on those notes and then that would become part of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the book feels very conversational in a way, uh -huh, which I, I think uh -huh. I'll, I'll touch on in a second. But also it feels very, for lack of a better term, well digested. Like you can kind of mm. see that, that this information came into you and was processed through you and came out onto the page. Which mm -hmm. So it's interesting to, to know that you did research in this way and then like kind of researched your research or like right. at least like you know engaged with it in a, in a very specific way in order to yeah. to have it appear on the page um so yeah this conversational element and and this maybe will touch a, kind of bridging the the difference between the research element and the personal element um the mirror is, kind of becomes a ground for conversation between mm -hmm. the narrator and the narrator right, <laughs> right right or the narrator reflecting on the narrator mm -hmm. um and i wonder if if it's possible for you to speak about what that what it was kind of like to take that personal element of what it feels like to just engage with oneself in the mirror and in these in these very complicated and complex ways um to take that kind of personal experience and get that onto the page yeah i think the research was really key to getting to that place. I mean, I knew when I first started writing some of the pieces of what would eventually become this book, I think I, I had a real desire to get there, to get to the really personal. Um, and But it was also really challenging and really in places painful. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about the mirror is and wanted to learn more and then spend some time thinking about it um, is that the mirror has played a role in my life as a trigger for dermatillomania symptoms, which it's also called a few other things, excoriation disorder, skin picking disorder. Um, but it's related to a lot of people have heard of trichotillomania where people compulsively pull out their own hair. Um, so it's similar to that. Um, but that, that's a, for a lot of people who have dermatillomania, um, mirrors are really tough for them. Um, and I cite also in the book, there's um, an anecdote I came across in my research of a woman who... Um, gets stuck not picking her skin but just like 
fixing her appearance of fixing her hair in particular um, and has to go as far as hiding her own toaster from herself. Um, otherwise she can get stuck like for like an hour or more. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to be able to talk about those pieces of my own experience, but um, I think for me, the research was like a side door into being able to start to talk about and think about those things without it being so like in my throat, mm. um, difficult to talk about. Um, but I think also in the same way that I mentioned earlier that that part of what is seen in the mirror and part of what the mirror does is honest, mm. um, that I wanted to be honest about the ways that the mirror sees us in terms of, um, I think the way women in our culture in particular um, feel, a, a, there's like a, a history, a little bit of, of women's poetry talking about the mirror. I mean, Sylvia Plath has this incredible poem um, about a woman crying over her appearance in the mirror. Um, and also people who have dysphoria um, and who who can't connect with what they see in the mirror. Um, people who have disorders like schizophrenia who literally can't recognize themselves in the mirror. Mm. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of going all over the place with this answer. But, <laughs> no, it's great. But um, <laughs> I definitely, that, that's also like how the book is, by the way, um, <laughs> all over the place about, about one thing. But uh, yeah, I think I actually, uh, one thing I wanted to mention too is that I don't think a lot of it, it made its way into the book, um, but I did for a while have a practice of, I think it was for a month, I spent one minute a day just looking at the mirror and doing nothing else. Mm. Um, because, you know, again, as a trigger for s symptoms for skin picking for me, like, like I do actually cover a lot of the mirrors in my house um, and try not to look in the mirror. So this was like a very intentional, like I will look in the mirror, I, I, my hands will be still, you know, I will not start picking my skin. But then once the timer goes off, I'm gonna write for mm -hmm. however long I need to write. And a little part of me was like, ah, oh, this maybe this will like mean the mirror is no longer a trigger. Like, LOL, that's not true. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it was interesting to like basically stare at a trigger of mine intentionally. Mm. Um, it, it flipped the power dynamics. Um, and some of, I, I think maybe the only passage in the book that came from that, and I'm not going to remember where it is, but it's, um, uh, it's this passage in which... Um, the narrator's looking in the mirror and talks about um, this feeling of something curling around the neck, soft and spined. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to find it. Um, but that's, that's more of that personal element that you were talking about of, of like actual physical experience and, and, um, and personal experience rather than oh here's a place where mirrors come up somewhere mm -hmm. else um 
and maybe you'll ask about this as well, but just um, one uh, last thing uh, is this series of practices that happen throughout the book that instruct the reader to do things um, kind of in their real world, their real physical world is also interested in this like physical embodied experience um, because I also was aware of and thinking about not wanting the book to just be this like erudite um, sort of study of mirrors uh, and instead also be very in tune with the physical ramifications of mirrors being everywhere um, and us being able to see ourselves at any time that we want, which is very new. Yeah. <laughs> Evolutionarily. <laughs> yeah. 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 Actually, I was going to ask about the practice sections. That was kind of... I, I didn't have a specific order, but since you just touched on them, it's probably the perfect time to to bring them up. So as I was reading, um, the practice sections kind of jumped out at me and I, I didn't actually do any of them, but I thought about doing them. I thought about like getting sure. up and doing them or I thought about maybe I'll do this tomorrow. Um, and so there was like um, a kind of engagement there. And as I was reading and, and engaging with those sections, I thought to myself, this is really interesting in a way I'm being implicated in this, in this way we engage with mirrors, right? Like the reader yeah. is being implicated and that's a, maybe in a way that kind of the, you know, the book can stand as the mirror with the author on one side and the reader on the other. And mm -hmm. um, how is the book becoming an intermediary with um, how the reader sees themselves. So I, I thought that that was right. very skillfully done. How, um, let me see if I can maybe be a, a little bit more articulate if I write, if I, <laughs> if I read what I actually wrote. Um, in the practice sections and via the use of we, the subject and our, there seems to be an intention to implicate the reader too. That is, mm -hmm. no one with sight is free from this brutal separation between being and seeing. And that's something, right. like you said, is it's a new, a newish thing, kind of exposed yeah. to ourselves as much as we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I was thinking a lot about what you were saying about being implicated as the reader um, with, I wanted exactly what you were talking about, not necessarily for the reader to actually get out a pad of sticky notes and write numbers on them in the way that one of the practices instructs you to, but to even read that is a very different experience from reading, say, a paragraph on um, like Shinto shrine, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the way that your mind um, almost like embraces that kind of language and digests it um, is implicates you. And I, I think I'm also just really fascinated in, in how that happens and why that happens and, and sort of what as a reader or where we identify and, and how we identify with text. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm almost more interested at the level of the implication itself rather than like, oh, well, I did it and found out that there were <laughs> 70 reflective surfaces in my house. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> you know, that's also cool. But but um, what happens in the mind and the body when we start to 
you know, when the shoulders start to go up and we start to feel um, maybe even like, and we start to anticipate feelings of shame or anticipate mm. anxiety or fear. Um, yeah, I find that to be really um interesting <laughs> yeah. for lack of a better word yeah <laughs> yeah for sure I find it so interesting too just like the engagement of, of the levels of engagement in in reading a book and engaging with a book mm-hmm. okay so so part how much of II was published as facing the mirror a few years back I think facing the mirror was about 35 pages long so like around half was Facing the Mirror kind of pulled out of I.I. or did I.I. grow out of Facing the Mirror? I.I. grew out of it. I was trying to uh, get to a full length. <laughs> mm. And in doing that, I was like, well, if I can get to chapbook length, then then I know <laughs> that this can happen. <laughs> so uh, although I'm really, you know, I say that, um, but I don't mean it flippantly. Like I'm very pleased with the chapbook and think it's a really beautiful object in its own. And it is a different reading experience. I mean, obviously people who, who read both are going to be able to see where things come from. But, um, but I think I, I, the full length is, has much more of a journey and kind of a, a drama and plot to it. Whereas facing the mirror is, it feels much more fragmented um, and is kind of a beautiful object um, in a way that I, I is is a little more interested in the things that we were just talking about, which is like meeting the reader at, at certain points. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting to know that like from, from something that feels like a beautiful object or fragmentary that, this this new book can kind of kind of grew out of it and mm-hmm. and, be, and became its own its own thing yeah and I, I definitely I mean it's the longest thing I've ever written um and so a lot of it was just me experimenting with like how do I get to this length <laughs> like how do I how do I do this thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I'm so as so one of the things that that I found fascinating about I.I., one of the many things, um, is that, you know, it is, it is poetry and lyric or lyric essays. Like it's kind of in that hybrid state. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, but it has a kind of interesting narrative arc and the narrative arc is kind of related to the punctuation of the Sheffer stroke. So you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about how, like how you did what you do at the end of the book. I feel like I don't want to give it away. Spoiler alert. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Whenever I read from it, I always read like one page from the end section uh, just to be like, well, here's kind of where it goes, but yeah, exactly. I don't want to like give it away. Um, But no, that's exactly it. I, it's like, well, of course a poet trying to write a full length work is going to like, find the drama in the punctuation but that's where it <laughs> that's where it is uh, and i stand by it um it's that's definitely where it started when i was drafting the book as well and then i also you, you talked about this too i was really interested in the um, use of pronouns um in the book and in like ways to refer to the self um mm and how those are necessarily then also ways that we become. Um, The ways that we think about and talk about ourselves 
um, are, you know, a chicken or the egg. I mean, I'm not sure, but they're inextricable from the ways that we are. Mm. Uh, so I wanted to dig into that and have and move from this kind of more fragmented um, sense where only one thing can be true and, and which one is it or is everything false um, to a more holistic um, kind of healing trajectory. Um, something I was also really interested in was like what what does healing look like when something is chronic or um, you know not as simple as like oh I broke my arm but then it healed it's oh well I um, have OCD or oh well I struggle with um, with skin picking or hair pulling or nail biting or I mean the, these are like ways that our brains behave um, mm. so what does healing look like for me or for somebody like me in that way um, and I'd like to say that that's what happens um, I think I don't give too much away if I also say that um, we move from the use of the shuffer stroke to words on top of themselves um, so we have text on top of text uh, with pronouns um, specifically and then that also changes again towards the very end um, with a little bit more regarding grammar than anything um, and that I, I found that to be really fun I think you know it's a really serious book but I also think that in the way that it finds a lot of joy in things like punctuation and how things appear on the page, that, that there's also um, a lot to find for somebody who's looking for beauty and, and joy in the book as well. Um, but it, yeah, it's not a light read. <laughs> No, which I guess you not. probably know if you're listening to this conversation. But. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, but there's I, lightness there. <laughs> yes, yeah, there's definitely room for beauty and and like a, maybe a sense of of wholeness as the mm -hmm. as the narrative wraps up. And that yes. that I I guess kind of touching on that idea of healing, it's like. I mean, I, I come back to this again and again, just for my, for my own self. Like I, I think most of us have a wound that doesn't heal and that yes. is just what we, it, whatever, whatever it looks like, it's different for each person, but we find ways to live with it. We find ways yes. to make it comfortable. We find ways to find, to pull beauty out of it. And I yes. think that the, the book does, does that for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and in a way that I hope is, you know, utilizes the very things that are wounding um, and moves. I think I was also thinking about, you know, lightness as part of the trajectory as this move from, I mean, the book is also like very obsessed with light as a phenomenon um, and about, you know, light is possible because of distance and separation. Mm. Um, and I think that speaks to what you were just saying also of like trying to find and make 
beauty and meaning and, and living with a wound um, that, you know, it's like, oh, sure, we encounter all these problems from the difference between what we perceive and what is and or what we think we perceive and what was. Um, but, you know, the beauty of light exists because of that gap. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I don't think that alleviates the wound, but it allows us to, in many cases, live with it and, and move from it, um, if temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think one last question about the, mm -hmm. the text, how much of the book was written before zoom and these in video call <laughs> stuff became like just how we live a lot of our life no normal in air quotes here yeah. um, i was really curious about that because that's another aspect of like how we are reflected to ourselves in a, in a daily way yeah a lot of it was written before um or kind of just as that was becoming nascent i think um i was thinking a lot about smartphones and sort of like the the accessibility of reflection and the accessibility of self image um because like i even i mean it wasn't that long ago where i as an adult would have to like go find a mirror at school mm -hmm. to look in or at work to look in um to see how my hair looked or if i had something in my teeth and now it's like oh my phone is like always four inches away and i just <laughs> pull it yeah. up um, but yeah, so I, I started to think about that more as I was kind of wrapping up the book, but, um, but it was still very new and I think I hadn't, it's sort of, it's hard to reflect on that time in this way, um, accurately, but I, I want to say that probably when I was finishing drafting the book, we were at a place where we were like, on Zoom a lot, but it hadn't fully like sunk in to, for yes. me. Yeah, you hadn't had time to like process what. Yeah, what it and it still meant. all felt like temporary. Like, oh well, this is what we're doing now, but tomorrow we're gonna go back to having in-person meetings, and this will go away. <laughs> it's like, oh well, of course it didn't go away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that changed a lot, um, and I think it's still changing. I mean, like TikTok was like not really a thing yet you know so um it, it's all the more omnipresent <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. um in ways that I hadn't even anticipated yeah yeah for sure um yeah I feel I think it might there's there's like a sense of timelessness to II that I think like any conversation about zoom <laughs> would have right. been would have felt out of place in but I I was curious <laughs> about like how much of that was kind of in your in your uh, mind as you were writing because it, it yeah. really has changed how we perceive ourselves and others in such a yeah, absolutely. interesting way. I did think about, and this didn't end up in the book, but I was thinking about, I think I read a study about how you can actually like measure people looking at themselves instead of anybody else in a Zoom meeting, mm. which I'm, I totally do. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know, me too. <laughs> spend 80% of every Zoom meeting looking at myself. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, I 
I'm sure you are not alone. I feel like I'm probably an exact same percentage yeah, rate of like yeah. how much I'm like, oh, I should really get like a haircut. <laughs> like yes. that's what I'm spending my time exactly. thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so will you talk a little bit about your path to publication for II? Sure. Um, I'm curious about how, how that went for you. Yeah, so you mentioned the chapbook, but before that, um, I and around that time, I was publishing excerpts of II in mostly journals that were very open to a hybrid kind of text. So um, journals that are a little more experimental, New Delta Review, Gasher Journal, Coast No Coast, which then published the chapbook, um, and and others. Um, and that became, a, a lot of it was, it informed the way I thought about the text as a whole because I remember with New Delta Review, they were the first to publish an excerpt and I sent it to them as poetry and they responded and they were like, we'd love to publish this, but as nonfiction. And I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna say no to that. Um, and, you know, I was totally thrilled, but also like seeing it in the nonfiction section of the journal and seeing what else was in the nonfiction section and, mm. and starting to think about it in that way. I was like, oh, like this. Yeah, like this is a path for this text. So when I started thinking about submitting it for publication as a book, um, it really didn't seem like a good fit for a lot of traditional like poetry first book competitions where people, you know, have these beautiful collections of one page poems about the same topic, you know, it, it felt like there are a lot of texts like it that I admire, but those seem to be a lot of texts that are poets fifth books. So they're like mm. established and have all these beautiful collections. And then they have this like really unwieldy text like um, I'm thinking of like Rachel Zucker's Sound Machine um, or I don't know I mean even like recent texts by like, like I think Heather Crystal's The Crying Book is probably her like fifth or sixth book and she has a lot more like conventional poetry collections out before that um, and yeah, so it just didn't seem like a good fit for a lot of those. And I started to look more at Lyric Essay. Um, Essay Press is a beautiful press I admire, even though they rejected this book twice. Um, <laughs> and, but, but those kinds of presses. Um, and so when um, Seneca Review, which is a publication I adore, um, and they've also been sort of like the home for Lyric Essay, and lyric essay thought um, for a long time now. Um, when I heard about their Deborah Tall Lyric Essay Book Prize, which happens every other year, um, I was like, oh, I've got to get this book ready for that. Um, and did, Kazim Ali was the judge. Um, and yeah, I I got a phone call and my phone said, maybe Kazim Ali. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Um, and poor Cosm was just trying to tell me that I'd won a contest and I was like, you're great. <laughs> Let's talk about you. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, <laughs> that happened. Um, and it's been really beautiful to work with them. Uh, they, 
Seneca Review Books really only publishes the contest. They've done a few other kind of side projects. Um, but so Jeff Babbitt there has been wonderful. And, and his book also, Appendices Pulled from a Study on Light, which I think I always mispronounce them, but Spoitendoble, I think, published. Um, and they also do a lot of that hybrid um, kind of unwieldy text stuff. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's that's how it all happened but it's uh it's been interesting yeah to think about this book and in some places in publicizing it it makes sense as nonfiction, and others it makes sense as poetry and um yeah that's that's been a whole thing that i didn't really anticipate um but i'm super grateful for it and excited about it and it's a fun conversation to get to have yeah 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 i know i guess i didn't think about the idea of publicizing something that's kind of ugh. I mean, do people just do people still use the the term hybrid text? Yeah. I feel like that's mm -hmm. what I always think. Like, mm -hmm. it is kind of in in that borderlands. I mean, thematically, it's in that kind of borderlands, but also just like genre wise, it's in yes. the borderlands of like poetry or lyric essay. And like, what really is? Where are the lines? There are not. There are you know maybe there aren't that many lines divided. There are market lines. Genre. You know, it's where do yeah. we shelve it and. Where do we, when people search for books, where do we, and when we have contests, like um, it was just named a finalist for the Colorado Book Award and I submitted Ooh. it as, as creative nonfiction and they um, initially, and they were like, can we move this to the poetry category? And again, I was like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So oh, con congratulations. That's thank awesome. You. <laughs> but it, it goes on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So I guess my last question is, what what's next? Are you working on anything right now? Do you have an idea of what you want to work on if you're not? What's, what's up yeah, next? Yeah, I have a couple things going on, but it's a lot of stuff is sort of swirling around in my head rather than really appearing as text on a page because um, working full-time and caring for a baby is no joke. Uh, I She's been sick more times than I can count the past like oh. three months. Um, <laughs> but I, I, the two projects was, uh, the first one I started before she was born in earnest and it, um, it's a very like high lyric, poetry collection that follows and occasionally takes on the voice of a um, fourth century uh, Christian pilgrim, Agaria. And some of her text, original text has actually survived. We have, you know, transliterations of it that, um, but so we actually know some of her like original Latin. Um, she kept a journal, uh, maybe wrote some letters. It's kind of unclear if those were um, you know, how those came to be. Um, but, uh, she's like a real historical figure and really an interesting woman. Um, somebody who, I think a lot of the history of the early church is overshadowed today, especially like what role women played. Um, and I'm not particularly religious, but I find that, uh, that exploration of, you know, a faith that moves you to leave a home that you've known to visit holy sites in, in a time in which that was very difficult to do. I mean, she was gone for years, you know, um, 
And she's the first known woman to have summited several mountains, including Mount Sinai. So I find that stuff to be really interesting and, and just, again, delving into some research <laughs> and texts. Yeah. Um, so that's one piece. Uh, and then another that I am, that exists mainly as a very long note on my phone is um, <laughs> I'm really interested in the process of language acquisition for my daughter. Um, obviously she is nowhere near talking at this point um, at 10 months, but the idea of like coming into language, the t a time before language, um, and also just I've been uh, very hungry for literature, contemporary literature by women about early motherhood because it's so, it's such a hard time and very all-consuming. Um, and there's, I find a lot of validation in reading um, those texts. So um, I, yeah, just have that kind of ongoing as an idea. And then eventually someday when I have enough energy, I'll probably do some research about language acquisition too. <laughs> but right now yeah. it's mostly just like, ah, I remember this thing I heard once and she's doing this right now. And yeah. <laughs> All right, that was Sarah Rash's conversation with Catherine Indermauer. You can get a copy of II wherever you buy books. And you can get a copy of Sarah Rash's XO from us at autofocuslit.com slash books. And you can check out our short story collection, What Shines From It, which came out from Alternate Current a few years ago. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.